Well, friends, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 to 16 is where we'll be. Uh, if you're visiting and don't have a copy of the Bible, look right in front of you or maybe down to the side of you, one direction or another. You should see some Bibles, little black hardback Bibles that we provided for you to use today. Uh, the section we're going to be looking at this morning is on page 901 of those Bibles, if you want to go ahead and flip over there. Uh, in, our, in our church, we're convinced that the whole Bible is a word from the Lord who made us to us about who he is, about who we are about what it looks like to live well in his world. And one of the ways that we affirm our commitment to the whole Bible as God's word to us is we just take it as it comes, verse by verse. On Sunday mornings, we, we work our way through entire sections of the scriptures, uh, section by section each week. And today we're on 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2, because last week Jonathan left off at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. This is part of how we submit ourselves to what God has said in his word. Uh, I don't think there's ever been a better example of our commitment to what we call expositional preaching than the fact that I'm about to preach for the next 40 minutes about what women should wear to church. And I'm going to do that on Mother's Day. <laughs> it didn't hit me till Thursday that those worlds had aligned. <laughs> so not planned, uh, but we trust useful to us in the providence of God because every word of God proves true. Every section of the Bible is needed. And this one is good for us too. A few years back, a popular writer named Rachel Held Evans drew a ton of attention for a book that she wrote called A Year of Biblical Womanhood. Uh, the premise of the book was actually pretty clever. It was, she, she spent a year abiding by all the gender-based requirements that the Bible assigns to women. Not, not all of them for the record, but some of the ones that she found to be the most provocative. And as you can guess, she absolutely played this up for comedy. Uh, you know, because Ephesians chapter 5 says that wives should submit to their husbands. She spent the year deferring to her husband's choices on Netflix anytime they disagreed about what to watch. Uh, she didn't cut her hair for an entire year because the Bible says that long hair is her glory. She learned how to sew and made her own clothes because Proverbs 31 celebrates sewing. She spent some time sitting on the roof of her house because Proverbs 21 says it's better to live in the corner of a housetop than to share a house with a quarrelsome wife. And she'd been a little quarrelsome that day. She, uh, because Proverbs 31 says that a virtuous woman's husband is praised at the city gates, she went out to the Welcome to Dayton, Tennessee sign, her hometown, and held up a sign that said, Dan is awesome. For at least a couple of hours she stood out there. Why, why, why would a book like that one climb the bestseller list as this one did? I mean, it shot up the, the list. Why, why would a book like this land her on all sorts of talk shows? All the ones a writer would hope to be on? And partly because she's, or was, she's, she's passed away since then. But she was a great writer. Very good at what she was doing. But I think one of the, one of the main reasons it was a bestseller and the talk shows were interested in it is that it's funny and captivating when these rules that the Bible gives us so often, so clearly seem to belong to a world that may as well be Mars compared to our world. You pluck them up out of their world and you plunk them down in our world and it looks funny. Different usually is funny. There's a deeper layer too though. And a deeper point that she was trying to make in her book. She was trying to show 
that people who claim to take the Bible seriously are seriously selective about it. They pick and choose what parts they do and don't want to talk about or impose on others. And they're especially guilty of that when it comes to gender. That's her claim. That's the point she tried to make with the book. And when she wrote that book, one of the key texts she had in mind is the text that we've come to this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 16. I want to go ahead and read this text for you. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I do that. Picking up in verse 2 of chapter 11. This is the word of the Lord to us. Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he's the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all these things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. That's a lot right there, isn't it? So many questions. Some of my questions about this text, I'll be honest, I can't answer even after a week of digging into it and not for the first time. There's no chance I'm going to answer all of your questions in the next 40 minutes. But I do think that for all the questions this text raises for us, the overall picture is actually pretty clear. Paul is is mostly concerned about the issue of women wearing veils at church in first century Corinth. He brings other things into it. He talks about hairstyle here and there, but always as an illustration or an example or an analogy, not as the primary thing that he was interested in. The driving theme is, is these head coverings. And underneath that issue, it's clear that Paul's driven by a deeper concern. Uh, a concern that, that, that Paul wants us to have as we come to church and as we go about our lives. Ultimately, the, the, the driving concern through the whole text is, is that our lives are shaped more by God's priorities than by our preferences. His goal is to share his concern with this church, with, with our church, for God's priorities and have those take priority over our preferences The text isn't a comprehensive list of what matters to God. He's not trying to do that. But if we grab that thread, what is it that matters to God? And does that matter to us? If that's the thread we grab a hold of, we pull that through these verses. 
we'll find our way through it and see what's meant for us in it. So that's what I want to do together. What priorities guide what Paul says here? What priorities of God would he have us to share? I see three. Three priorities I want to make clear to you this morning and, and for our own encouragement. Number one, sexual purity. Number two, gender distinctions. And number three, gospel clarity. The three priorities that drove Paul here, that he wanted to drive the church in Corinth, that he would have driving us as we evaluate our lives are sexual purity, gender distinctions, and gospel clarity. Let's take them one by one. The first priority I see coming through this text is the priority of sexual purity. It's the first layer of concern behind this teaching. And you couldn't easily see it right on the surface of this teaching without some help from historians and and Bible scholars. It's a a, a concern that's already come up in this letter. We know it was on Paul's mind because he talks about this in chapter 5 and in chapter 6 and in chapter 7. We know that it was an issue that was a problem for the, the, the Corinthians, a place where they were being influenced more by their culture around them than by the priorities of God. And that's what Paul is concerned about even here. He doesn't want anything in their gatherings to suggest that Christians are okay with sex outside of marriage. So, where does that come through? I mentioned it's not right on the surface if you don't know much about the background uh, of first century Corinth. That's because... Uh, commentators point out that a veil or a head covering like the one he's talking about that women should wear when they come to church, it was a symbol of modesty in this time and place. And on the flip side, not wearing a covering was a sign of sexual availability. Somebody compared the removal of a veil for a woman in, in this time and place uh, as, uh, to the same thing as taking off your wedding ring before you go on a trip. It's a symbolic message. It says, I'm available. And it's one that verse 5 says dishonors that woman's husband or disgraces him. It'd be, it'd be like saying he's not there or he's not a factor. It's like saying she's not faithful him and faithful to him and doesn't want to be. In fact, he says, it's, it's just as if she had cut her hair short or shaved her head. In the first century Corinth, that would have made the same message. A shaved head was a sign of, of, of shame over adultery or even a sign of participation in prostitution. And we've already seen, as I mentioned, in chapter 5 and 6 of this letter, that, that Paul was very concerned about the messed up views on sex that this church was guilty of. Too much of Corinth and their sexual permissiveness had come into the church. And then maybe it seems that that some in the church had misunderstood what it meant to become a Christian. As if in Jesus you're set free from the kinds of rules that guide our sexual behavior. And Paul's trying to, to clamp down on that and say, no, that's just not true. It matters to Christ what you do with your bodies. We've seen him make that case before and that's, that's something of what's going on here. All that's to say, guys, that when Paul says a wife should pray or prophesy with her head covered, part of what he means is that she should show through her appearance that sexual purity is important to her because it's important to God. Let me say it again. A big part of what Paul means in this text when he says that a wife should pray to God or prophesy before the church with her head covered is that she should show through her appearance that sexual purity is important to her because it's important to God. He wants no confusion about that in the church 
And he wants no confusion about that among newcomers who might come and check out what Christianity is all about and and come away confused. He doesn't want any distraction for them when the church gathers to worship God. So, if that's what Paul has in mind in this text, what does it mean for us? How does this affect how we come to our gatherings here at Edgefield? How does it affect how we live our lives throughout the week? I mean, the big takeaway here from this first concern is that is that we, we want to dress like sexual purity is important to us because it's important to God. Modesty still matters. Of course it's true that standards change. You know, standards of what's okay to wear change even in the same country like the United States of America, much less in different parts of the world at different times of history. To some degree, I, you think about clothes as a kind of symbol or language that we, that we use to communicate. And our symbols don't mean the same things in every time or in every place. There are cultures around the world right now, today, where head coverings mean basically what they did in first century Corinth. If you don't have one on, it's a sign that sexual purity is not a priority for you. It's a sign of sexual availability. And if you do have one on, it's a sign that it does matter to you. There are places, in other words, where we could gather as a church right now where we would want to say head coverings like this are important to keep the message about Jesus clear. But we don't live in a place like that. Head coverings don't have those connotations here and now. And that's why you're free to wear whatever you want on your head or nothing on your head at all, despite what Paul says in this, mass, in this passage. All that said, modesty still matters for men and for women. The principle in this passage, the the concern that, 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 that drove Paul to write this in the first place, it still matters every bit as much as it ever did. I think the Bible is telling us here to dress in ways that affirm what God says about sex. In ways that celebrate and embrace. This is a gift to be enjoyed inside of marriage. Inside the privacy and the commitment of a covenant between a man and a woman. And not outside of those boundaries. We want every symbol that we give. Every statement that we make. Through every means that is available to us in our culture. To say yes to what God has said about sex. What we wear in other words matters to God. And it affects other people. When we think about how, what we're, what we're going to put on our bodies, what drives us? What are we looking for? What are we hoping to accomplish? For instance, Jesus summed up the law with two great commandments, two great commandments that he would have to guide our lives. He says to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And he says to love your neighbor as yourself. You want to know what's okay to wear? You think, what would, what would help me to honor God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? What would be good for my neighbor, for my brother, for my sister? You see how backwards that is and how our culture tends to think about clothing? I mean, we celebrate self-expression. We celebrate standing out. We celebrate showing who we are through what we put on. In other words, I mean, our our basic goal, our basic summary, our basic law is if you've got it, flaunt it. But Christians bring other goals to the decisions that we make about what to wear. We want to know what would please God here? What would serve my brothers and my sisters here? So what do you think about, friend, when you decide what to put on? What's driving you as you make your decisions? How important is it to you to be noticed? 
to stand out? Whose attention is it that you really want to draw? What is it about your appearance that you hope to draw attention to? Whose trends ultimately are you following as you make these decisions? These are are crucial questions to ask. I think really important questions to ask with a friend that you trust. Because all day, every day, men and women, you are being bombarded by messages from Hollywood and Madison Avenue and all over the web about what you ought to do with your clothing decisions, about how you ought to present yourself to others. For all our emphasis on self-expression and individualism, there are powerful currents out there sweeping us in one direction. And you want to know that that's the world you live in, that those are the currents you're caught up in, whether you want to be or not, and that those are the themes that you'll want to notice with your friends so that you can push back on. So so do you? Are you careful in bringing other people in, people you trust, people who share your standards coming from God's word for what we ought to look like when we go out in public? I'd encourage you to as a way to apply this text this morning. It might be a good thing to do even this afternoon if you haven't. The first concern that that Paul has in writing this text, the first priority of God's that he would have become ours, is the priority of sexual purity. There is a second concern behind what Paul has written that I want to move us to now. The second concern, one that lies way closer to the surface of the text, one that takes up a lot more of his argument in this passage, that's his concern for gender distinctions. Paul is concerned that we see what God sees in our gender and that we embrace it and affirm it however we can because it matters to him. Even a a really quick reading of this text, uh, like the one I gave us a moment ago, shows that that Paul's got this on his mind. It's just right at a glance you'll see that he's talking about the differences that he wants to see between men and women and how they handle themselves at church. Over and over, he's working that contrast. He says, men should do this, women should do this. Men should do this, women should do this. Men shouldn't do this, women shouldn't do this. You see it especially in verses 4 to 6, verses 14 to 16, where he's driving in his his rubber-meets-the-road practical instructions for them. He wants men and women visibly distinct from one another. That part's clear. But why? One of the... One of the complicated things about this text that makes it hard to to untangle for us is that that Paul weaves in theology and cultural practices in and out, in and out, but without really slowing down to explain or unpack either one of them. So we got some theological principles here, things that are true because God has made his world to work in a certain way. But then we also got lots of things that involve honor and shame, which are unique to each culture, which are about symbols that a certain culture has that others may not. And they're woven in together back and forth in a way that, 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 that Paul knew his readers would get, but that we have to work harder to understand for ourselves. That, that's the work I want us to take up right now. I want us to just do a slow walk through these verses to see how gender matters to God and therefore should matter to us. We want to see that on a theological level first. And then understand how to apply that on a practical level in our culture, in our time and place. Whatever is, one of the things that is clear about this text is that for Paul, gender involves theology and culture. It involves some things that are true in all times and all places because of the way God made his world. And some things that we come up with 
based on our instincts, based on our associations, our culture's symbols. Those two are not the same, but those two both matter. The, the, the theology involved is from God as creator who makes us as we are, who we are, on design, his design for his purpose. The other things, the cultural side, that, those things come from human societies. You know, we come up with this stuff. We, we come up with it to capture or picture how we see the meaning of things. And these customs we come up with, they're not neutral. They, they give us a chance to either lean into what God has said, the theology side, or lean away from it. They give us a chance to, to accept and affirm what God has said about his world and our place in it or to reject it. So, so let me do this. Let, let, let's walk first through the theological principles Paul gives us here. What he says about how God has designed men and women in his world. And then see what he's saying about cultural symbols that come from their time and their place and, and how those connect to ours. I see two theological principles that Paul's working with here. Two things that are rooted in creation that matter to God and therefore ought to matter to us. You can see them especially in verses 7 through 12. That's the most substantive section here. And then also in verse 3. Let me, let me show you one, each one in turn. The first principle is that God created two distinct genders on purpose. God created two distinct genders on purpose. In other words, men and women, as God made us, we're interdependent, but we're not interchangeable. That, that's the core message of verses 7 to 12. Uh, these, these are the verses that have some of the most striking and, and, and out of context, some of the most troubling statements in this passage. Let me just read these again for you. A man ought not to cover his head, Paul writes, since he's the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. There's a lot there in just those few verses. I think the master key, the most important thing to know for seeing what he wants us to see in those verses is that Paul is echoing here the creation story of Genesis chapters 1 and 2. He says what he says here in the way that he says it here because on his mind is that fundamental foundational story about where we came from. And so knowing that's where he's coming from, before I even walk any further through it, I want to refer you to a sermon that I gave about this time last year that was all about those chapters and all about gender. It was a 45-minute talk that was all about what I'll spend the next 5 to 10 minutes on. It has a lot more detail and I think may answer a lot of questions I won't be able to answer for you this morning. So if, if, what, if this leaves you wanting a little more, let me encourage you to spend some time this afternoon listening to that. You can even speed it up to, to, to one and a half times on the podcast if you want and blow right through it. I do think it'll help you and it'll certainly, it'll certainly carry on with, with a few of the things I want to say now. In, that chapter, in those two chapters, rather, Genesis 1 and 2, Paul starts, or rather uh, the author of Genesis starts in chapter 1 with this zoomed out version of God's creation of everything. And, and at the end of that story of how God made everything that is, as the crown of all of his creation, we get humanity made in God's image. 
And Paul, or excuse me, the, the author of Genesis specifies in that part that it's men and women that I mean when I say they're created in God's image as the crown of his creation. It is men as well as women who are given the job of, of filling the earth and subduing it, of bringing good out of it, of cultivating God's good world. The, the passage that Seth read for us earlier in our service, it's all about both men and women. That's the zoomed out view. Then in chapter 2, it's like a Google Street view. It's, it's, it goes from Google Earth to Google Street View and walks you through the order, how it actually played out in, in real time. That's where the order of creation matters a lot. It matters for the story that the man was created first. Because the whole chapter in chapter 2 is playing out to show that, that a one-gendered humanity wasn't good enough. All through chapter 1, step by step, as God makes different parts of his world, we're, we hear God look at what he's made and say, that is good. 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 Over and over. That is good. All the way until chapter 2, where you've got God making Adam, putting him in a perfect world of peace and plenty. You're all geared up. As as God has made Adam, you're geared up for, for God to look at what he's made and say, and that is good. But Genesis 2 verse 18 gives us the exact opposite message. For the first time in his world, God looks at something and says, it is not good that the man should be alone. That phrase is like a strobe light in the middle of the story. It's like an alarm bell ringing at max volume. It's it's meant to draw all of our attention to this one central reality at the heart of that text. That a one-gendered humanity is not good enough. God designed men and women to work together. He designed them to be interdependent and not interchangeable. In other words, both men and women are necessary because each one of them is different. That was his purpose. Now, now with that backstory from Genesis 1 and 2, then we can see some light into what Paul's doing in, in, in these verses I've just read for us in chapter 11. He's basically applying the story of Genesis 1 and 2 to what men and women should wear to church. Verse 6 is, ends with him saying, let her cover her head. There's the thing he wants them to do. Verse 7 begins with a four, and he launches into a sequence of things from the Genesis story that explain where he's coming from. Verses 8 and 9, he says that man was not made from woman, but woman from man. That's just Genesis 2. That's the order that God worked this out in. That man was not created for woman, but woman for man. That's just how the story plays out. Man was doing a work that he was not qualified to do by himself. And woman completes the work God has given humanity to do. That's where Paul's coming from. And that's the point he's trying to clarify in verses 11 and 12. It's like he knows we could misread him in verses 8 and 9. You know, he, he knows we could read verses 8 and 9 and be thinking a hierarchy of value and purpose where men matter more and women are just afterthoughts or handmaidens. And, and so because he knows we could see that here, because he knows his Greek audience would have already thought that, he screeches to a halt in verses 11 and 12 and says, no, that, that's not what I mean, actually. Now we're interdependent. Yeah, it started with women coming from men. That's Genesis 2. But, but now men come from women. And all things are from God anyway. If we're talking about a chain of being here where, some val- where lives have different value, you've got God at the top and you've got all of us down here. All things are from God, he says. So, 
within humanity, the point Paul is trying to drive home here, the theological statement about gender that he's drawing from when he makes this practical argument about head coverings, is that God made men and women distinct on purpose. That those differences, their differences from one another are useful to one another and to their work in his world. That's the reference back to Genesis 1 and 2. Now here's the theological principle number two that Paul cites in his text. Number two is that God has assigned different responsibilities to men and women in different contexts. God has assigned different responsibilities to men and women in different contexts. That's the point of Paul's opening statement that that, that hangs over the whole thing. Verse three, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. I don't know how that reads to you at a first glance. I certainly think that at a first glance it looks like Paul is saying something that I don't think Paul is saying. At a first glance it looks like what he's saying is, is setting up that whole chain of being that I mentioned. With God at the top, Jesus is under him, then men, then women, then presumably foreigners or puppies or snakes or bugs or what have you, all on down the line. I, I think it's, it's easy to misread him, partly because that has been such a common idea throughout the history of humanity. It was common in Paul's time. Uh, Aristotle was a famous for a, a chain of being like that that he had written up. It would have been familiar in Corinth. It's common even today in our world in some parts of the world. There, there's a reason that selective abortions in, in mass sections of Asia uh, are, are choosing women, choosing females. That's not what Paul is saying here. In fact, he basically says the opposite in verses 11 and 12. The only chain of being he's got is God up here at the top and all the things that God made down here. If he were trying to set up a chain of being like that one, like kind of a hierarchy of value, if that's what he was wanting to do, he wouldn't have put God at the bottom of it like he does in verse 3. He mentions that the head of Christ is God at the, at the end of his list. It's just not what he's trying to do. His whole point in verse 3 is that everybody's got a head. Wives have a head, husbands have a head, even Christ has a head. So to get at what he means in verse 3, we need to know what he means by head. What is this head that everyone has? When we hear the word head, I think we normally go to something like a CEO, you know? The guy with the best paycheck, the guy with the most perks, the company car, the reserve spot, you know, the one calling all the shots. Head, as, as Paul uses it here and in other parts of his letters, I mean, it certainly involves authority, but it's more about responsibility. Any authority that comes to a head comes from the, the responsibility and the accountability that God has given to that head for the health and the direction of whatever it is that he represents. A head is, is something like what Adam was in the garden, where he represented all of humanity and whether he obeyed or disobeyed God. It's something like what Abraham was for Israel when God called him out of, out of Ur and gave him his good promises. Something like what David was when he served as a king over Israel. And, and maybe the best example of all of what, God, of, what, of what Paul means when he uses the term head is Jesus and how he serves his church. Paul uses this term for Jesus right here. And he uses it in Colossians 1 and he uses it in Ephesians 5. He says, just as, as Christ is the head of the church and then tells you what he means by that. It was as head of the church that he's the firstborn from the dead, Colossians 1. Because he was raised from the dead, 
all those that he represents will one day be raised from the dead. It's as head of the church that he made peace with God through the blood of his cross, Colossians 1 says. Because he did what was right. Because he sacrificed himself. Now all those that he represents enjoy what he, what he earned for them. And in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says that just as Christ is the head of the church, God has made husbands to be the head of their families. In other words, God has made husbands to be responsible under God for the health, the flourishing and the spiritual direction of the families God's given them. You can read that a lot more about it in Ephesians chapter 5. Here, Paul's not trying to explain it. He just cites it. He just says that it's true to explain why he's telling them what he's telling them about what they wear and how they fix their hair. Basically, what he's telling them about their head coverings is that he wants, he wants what they do with their bodies, what they do on their heads, their physical, literal heads, to reflect their acceptance of, embrace of, their metaphorical heads. That they accept gender distinctions that matter to God. That because those distinctions matter to God, they matter to them too. I mean, on the one hand, Paul knows that, that the Bible has basically nothing to say about things like head coverings and hairstyles. There's no head coverings in Genesis 2. I mean, there's no clothes at all in that chapter. Uh, there's nothing about that in the prophets. There's nothing about that anywhere in the teaching of Jesus. And when he's talking about head coverings and hair lengths, his language shifts. Did you notice this? From what God has done and said to what brings shame or honor, to what brings disgrace or, or glory. He's in a different register when he starts to apply those practical teachings. I mean, just look at verse 4. Every man who prophesies or prays with his head covered dishonors his head. Honor and shame. Every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. There it is. Honor and shame. In verse 6, it is disgraceful, he says. Verse 13, judge for yourself. Is it proper? Is it customary? Doesn't nature itself teach us that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? Do you see? He's using different arguments there. Paul knows when he's talking about head coverings and hairstyles, he's talking about cultural symbols. Things that are more like language than like laws. He knows that these things are how we communicate with one another. That they're not a, a timeless part of God's design. They come and go. They change over time. They're not binding on all people in all places in the same way, but they still matter because they communicate like a language. That means they're not neutral. They're not timeless, but they're also not unimportant. It matters how you relate to them because how you relate to these symbols communicates something whether you want it to or not. So here, let me, let me boil it down for you guys. Here's his point. I think Paul's point to them is basically, you want to use these symbols about gender to show you embrace the meaning of gender as God defines it. Symbols communicate meaning. Use the symbols you've got to communicate the meaning you, you embrace. It's one thing to say that standards of masculinity and femininity change over time. It's another thing to say that anything goes. And for, for Paul, Paul's already made it clear in, in the chapter right before this one, the standard that, that applies to everything we're doing in, in our lives. He says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. But whatever you put on your head, whatever style you choose for your hair, make sure that it glorifies God, that it says something about God's priorities, that it says, I'm with him. So what does that mean for us? 
Well, let me start with, with head coverings for women at church. I don't believe if Paul were writing this letter to us, he would tell our women to cover their heads and our men to keep their hats at home or keep their hair cut short. Times have changed. We don't speak that language anymore. Those things don't communicate here and now to us what they communicated back then or in other parts of the world today. I think this is where the book I mentioned earlier was a lot better suited to selling books, you know, the, the, the approach, the premise, than to actually grappling with the meaning of texts like this one. It missed the distinction between principles that God gives us that are timeless, like God's intentional creation of men and women, and symbols in our culture that, that do change over time. We don't encourage head coverings at Edgefield because we don't speak the same cultural language anymore. We don't encourage head coverings any more than we encourage anybody to greet anybody else with a holy kiss. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 that we ought to. You get here on Sunday morning, holy kiss. Everybody you see, that's his standard. But I mean, for us, like a handshake or a side hug works better. That's the language that we speak to make the same statement. We are glad you're here. We're really, really glad to see you. On the other hand, where God has communicated timeless truth about his world and about our place in it, we want to obey him. So in our church, we reserve the office of elder for qualified men. We do that not because we think men are better teachers, not because we think men are better leaders by nature, not because we think they're always more rational or decisive or anything like that. The reason we reserve that office the way we do is because Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 and 3 that we ought to. And he ties that back not to something that brings honor or shame, not to what's disgraceful or glorious, but to what God did in setting up his world in creation. That's where he roots that argument. In our homes, we encourage men to take responsibility that God has given to them, to be self-sacrificing leaders, to take the initiative to make sure their families are flourishing and their wives are thriving. And we encourage wives to trust that leadership from their husbands. And the reason we, we, keep, we keep on with this is that in Ephesians 5, where Paul gives us these, these instructions, he ties it back not to what brings honor and shame, not to what's disgraceful or glorious, but to something eternally beautiful. He ties it back to the way that Christ and his church relate to one another and tells us that's been the point all along. So when it comes to cultural symbols, to what we wear, we have a lot more flexibility in our time and place than they did back in Paul's time. And I think that's okay. I think in a lot of ways that's a good thing. It's good that we have that flexibility. And God hasn't told us what colors or styles or fabrics are acceptable to him. We've got freedom as men and women today. But, I, but at, at, at root, our goal in what we do with that freedom ought to be the same that, that Paul had in writing to the Corinthians. We want to say through our choices that gender is a good thing and not a bad thing. We want to say through our language that we speak now that we see gender at root as a gift from God, not a social construct. We see gender as something more than the oppressive social constructions that have often been built up around it. There is something there that when you strip away the oppressiveness is still beautiful, still good, and still worth holding up because it's created by God, it's precious to him, and therefore it ought to be precious to us too. So I think a good way to respond to this part of what Paul has said would be to talk to a friend 
about how here and now in our time and in our place, what would it look like to show that I embrace my gender as a gift from God? And to ask maybe in addition to that, to ask, am I doing anything now to communicate that I don't embrace my gender as a gift from God? Friends, I want to leave you with one final, one final piece to God's priorities that I think affects what Paul is saying here and the way that he's saying it. This one, too, is, is further beneath the surface than the gender distinctions point we've just considered, but, but crucial and fundamental for what Paul is doing and for the point we want to take from it this morning. This is just a couple of minutes to close. We want to prioritize gospel clarity. Gospel clarity. We've seen enough already throughout this whole letter that that, to know that that's what Paul was after. I mean, he wrote the letter to make it really clear that his message was Christ and Christ crucified, front and center, beginning to end. That's all he wanted to talk about. And he, wanted, he wrote this letter to help make sure that we, when we apply that, are showing that we think Christ crucified is the center of our faith through all the decisions we make as a church and as individuals who follow him. That's been Paul's goal from the beginning. And he didn't mention Christ crucified in these verses, but given what he's been saying all along, it's not difficult to see that that's the concern behind what he says here and to see why this issue about head coverings mattered so much to him. I mean, take verse 10, for example. This to me is one of the most unusual statements in this unusual passage. He says that a wife ought to have her head covered because of the angels. I'm going to go ahead and tell you that nobody agrees about what Paul has in mind in that phrase. I mean, our minds go immediately to spiritual beings, like those that show up sometimes through the stories of the Bible. Uh, those are, uh, uh, we've seen those as images of what it's like to be in God's presence in the prophets. Because those beings are involved in worship, that, that, that's their main thing. And because those beings are important, it, it, it could be just another reason not to do anything that's disgraceful in our worship. But, but I actually think another explanation for that phrase works better and speaks directly to Paul's concern that we keep Jesus front and center. The word angel is really just the word for messenger. It doesn't come with a capitalization. It's not obvious that it's ever referring to a spiritual being. The word means messenger. And we don't know this for sure, but, but some commentators have suggested that what Paul has in mind here is actually human messengers. People who would have been sent to check out this unusual gathering. People who have been sent to report back to the authorities or the powers that be on what's going on in these Christian meetings. They don't understand. It's unusual to meet like the Christians were doing every week on the first day of the week. So if, if, if these messengers have come to observe and then to take back reports to others on what's going on here, Paul wants the right message getting through. He wants them walking back with a report about Jesus and what these people believe that Jesus did and what happened to Jesus and where Jesus is now and what they're hoping for because of Jesus. He doesn't want them walking away saying, these folks are revolutionaries. With these folks, anything goes sexually. With these folks, it may as well be that gender is, is, is non-existent. Basically, Paul wants them walking away. If, the, if they're going to walk away saying Christians are crazy, he wants them to walk away saying they're crazy because they believe a carpenter from nowhere is the son of God who became a human. He wants them thinking Christians are crazy because a crucified criminal, they think, is the king of the universe now. Because they think that this dead man 
is now alive again and coming back soon. He wants that to be the headline, not, can you believe their women go in there uncovered? Paul's goal here is not to obscure the gospel. He says nothing at all about the deeper meaning of head coverings. There's no tie back to creation or redemption. He's focused on the impact that a head covering would have on these people and this culture, whether they're likely to communicate disgrace or honor, glory or shame. He doesn't want to do anything to take anybody's focus off Jesus. By all means, blend in. So, if you're here and you're not sure about Christianity, you've come to explore it, you're wondering what Christians believe, and maybe now after you've read this passage, you're really not sure about it because this teaching about gender seems way off to you. Let me tell you, focus on Jesus first. It is his authority on which all of this stands or falls. What's written about gender here is worth your time if Christ is risen, even though he was dead. If Christ is not risen, what's written about gender here is not worth your time. Paul, at the end of his letter, he sums up what he delivered to them as of first importance. Christ died for our sins so that we could be forgiven. Christ was buried because he really did die. Christ was raised from the dead on the third day, and he was seen by a bunch of people you can ask about it. These are the things of first importance And everything I've said this morning flows from our conviction that they're all true. Let's talk about that after the service, if you're willing. And if you're here this morning as a Christian, I want you to remember the same thing. Remember what Paul says is of first importance. Everything that that, that is in God's word is important. We want to hold our lines on all of it because we don't get to stand in judgment over what God has said and whether it's worth our time. But the reason for it is always Jesus. We uphold the truths of the Bible about gender even when we're pressured not to because ultimately we want the message about Jesus to be as clear as possible and we think that's what gender is for. It's here to help us picture something of his beauty, of his glory as our savior and our redeemer. We want our priorities to reflect God's and his ultimate priority is really clear. We know where this is headed. God has given him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue one day will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God the Father. And for this day, that's our priority too. We worship and we live as men and as women to make his beauty clear and compelling. So that every knee longs to bow down to this king. Let's bow down to him now together. Father, we thank you for speaking to us. We pray that you give us the grace and the humility to receive your words and to embrace them as good news. We pray that you would help us to bear good and clear and compelling witness to Jesus because he's worthy of it. And we pray that you would help us to use our gendered identities for that end as our ultimate goal. We pray that you give us what we need to obey you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.